0: The Athletic.
1: What is macho? If macho means fighting, I can fight with the best of them. If machoism means getting stuck into a tackle, I can do that. If it means going to bed with seven or eight women in a night, probably I could do that <laughs> as well. And I think that we need to reevaluate our views on what makes a man a man.
2: The framing of Justin Fashanu, both in life and in death, has had the most profound subconscious impact on football as a sport and those who follow
3: football.
0: I just felt this sense of loss, not just for him, but for all the people that he could have uh,
3: helped. I was, I was absolutely
4: crying out for
3: uh, for any sort of role models.
4: Everyone knows a few things about Justin Fashanu. They know that he was Britain's first black one million pound footballer. They know he was the first male British professional footballer to come out as gay. And they know that in 1998, he took his own life. who was a man often reduced to the tragedy of his death, but you might not know much about how he lived, about the internal struggles and contradictions, treatment at the hands of the media, managers, teammates, and even his own brother, about the homophobia and racism he suffered and about a man who essentially spent his entire life searching for acceptance. I'm James McNicholas, and this is Beyond the Headline. Justin Fashanu was born in 1961 in Hackney to Nigerian and Guyanese parents. When he was still a toddler, his father returned to Nigeria And his mother sent him and his brother John into the care of Barnardo's children's charity. At the age of six he was fostered by a white couple, Betty and Alf Jackson, and grew up with John in Norfolk. A promising boxer in his youth, Justin made his pro debut for Norwich aged 17 and rose to national prominence after scoring a goal against Liverpool. An extraordinary left-footed half-volley which would win him the Match of the Day Goal of the Season award.
1: When Norwich were relegated in
4: 1981, Nottingham Forest made him the first black, million-pound footballer. But in many ways, that was the beginning of the end of his top-level playing career he scored only three times in 32 appearances and suffered what amounted to homophobic bullying by forest manager Brian
5: Clough. I feel responsible for juicy fashion,
4: you. <laughs> That's Clough on national TV back in 95. It took me about three
5: months to twig him. <laughs>
6: You and paid, him.
0: You paid, you, you paid for last. the
5: first million pound player, which
4: was After leaving Forest, he spent three years at Notts County. But otherwise, his career was spent as a wanderer, a loose string of brief spells at 17 different clubs in six different countries. He spent most of his career drifting from team to team, searching for something, somewhere he belonged, somewhere he was truly accepted.
0: He was uh, kind of a, a man on an island.
4: AJ Lee was a friend of Justin's in America and president of Maryland Mania, where Justin was coaching right up until the last few weeks of his life. You
0: know, he, he desperately wanted uh, people's acceptance. It, in, in some ways, he was like a little kid. You know, Justin often reminded me of a you know, 10 or 12-year-old boy who was just finding his way. And he had that the the wonderment about life, uh, that humour, that openness, but also that um, that craving to be accepted.
2: Not only accepted, but also loved. Um, Not just
4: tolerated, but embraced. Adam Crafton is a reporter for The Athletic. This podcast is an adaptation of Adam's definitive profile of Justin Fashionu's life and death, published on what should have been Justin's 60th birthday. And i don't
2: think he got that from any section um, of society at that time and and i think you have to trace that back to to his childhood um he was a young a young black boy who was placed into care at the children's charity bernardo's he was then fostered by a white couple in norfolk um which you know in many ways it meant that he was a black child brought up in a highly white environment and yeah, I suppose you can imagine the. I suppose the sense of dislocation that that, that probably gives you over time um, and then he becomes a footballer he starts off being a very successful footballer um, he then becomes a flop of a footballer because he was a one million pound transfer that didn't work out at Nottingham Forest so I suppose he's first been embraced and then cut adrift um, by football in many ways so I suppose you could describe football as one of those communities that he had the potential to really belong to, but he was too different. He then goes into goes fully into the church and you think, well, maybe this can be the environment where I belong, where, I, where I'm appreciated, where I'm loved for who I am. But then his sexuality becomes the defining issue of that tension between God and, and, and himself and also people in the church and himself. He needed a kind of community, really people
7: who, who, who were going to sort of look after him and, and be on his side.
4: Malcolm Doney met Justin through the church and they became friends. Malcolm would go on to become a priest himself.
7: I felt he, he was a bit of a lost soul and rather naive and somebody who was probably quite easily influenced. He was a very likeable, very vivacious young guy and gave the appearance of being sort of happy-go-lucky, but uh, you, you felt that he wasn't earthed quite. I mean, you know, it's very difficult if you've been effectively abandoned by your parents and then you know, be brought up uh, in foster care, as both he and John were. So it's, it's not a great start.
4: The search for acceptance led him to the church when he was living in Nottingham not long after signing for Forest in 1982.
2: I mean, the, the, the story of Fashanu and, and, and his religion goes, I think, probably started quite early on in his period at Nottingham Forest, um, where he was struggling to score goals. He was struggling with his form. And at the same time, he, you know, he'd, I think he'd started to have these inklings about his sexuality. And he went one day to a, to a car supplier Um, So a guy called Terry Carpenter who noticed he was feeling down and started talking to him about Jesus Christ and took him back to his house, started reading passages from the Bible and the account seems to be that, you know, in the space of a few hours he became fascinated by, I suppose, by being welcomed into a community, by a community that was very much happy to welcome him um,
4: as well, almost, you know, as a little bit as a trophy asset as well at that time. His commitment to his faith has occasionally been questioned, but he certainly sounded like he meant it at the time. It caused yet more friction between him and Clough and there was even a time during his spell with Notts County where he refused to play on the Sabbath, which he tried to explain on local ITV news.
5: The only reason I'm playing on a Sunday is to further Notts County and Justin Fashner. And I believe that if you're a doctor then you're not furthering your, uh, your cause in a monetary situation. You're doing it because people's lives are at risk and that you're going to save lives, pre- uh, hopefully. So, I'm but, it, but in this case, people's livelihoods are at risk. Wouldn't it be more Christian to play for Notts County who are struggling and help your teammates? Yeah, I do. In That's generally. right. It is. And, and it's a difficult situation. I haven't gone into it lightly and thought, well... Um, this is what I, just a whim for me. I've thought long and hard. I've given it um, a go twice and played on the Sunday against my better beliefs. I think that sooner or later you've got to make a stand. The Lord says honour me and I'll honour you. I know that it's caused a lot of problems. It's caused a lot of heartache because we are in a very precarious situation. But I believe that my first calling is to Jesus and, and that's what I must do.
4: Religion was just one of the places that Justin hoped would provide refuge. But as with so many aspects of his life, it really only brought conflict. Adam Crafton.
2: One of the most shocking, um, but most insightful memories uh, within the piece was talking to someone called Matthew Hodson. And Matthew had had, he had a bit of a thing with with Justin. Actually, it was in the late 1980s. He said that, you know, when, after they'd met in a bar, they went back to Justin's flat and he put on some music and, and Matthew was expecting it to be, you know, a bit of blues, a bit of jazz. Um, something to set the mood. And then he put on music that was, you know, not just faith music, but seriously faith music. Um, and, you know, I think Matthew actually said to him, you're going to have to turn that off if we're going to, you know, have the night that we were expecting to have here. Um, and then the next morning they went for breakfast and they started talking about Justin's, you know, belief in Christianity and his religion. And the words that Justin used were, I believe that my sexuality is a test from God and that I'm failing it. Self-confidence
4: was uh, was challenged, you know. A.J. Ali. He loved the Lord. He loved God, no doubt, no doubt about
0: it. In fact, I know he's he's up in heaven right now, probably having a great time, joking with people, and you know, and just you know, being himself. Yeah, that was uh, that was a real challenge, you know, for for him, the way people treated him. That were religious, wanted him to be something other than, than what
4: he was. Every place that Justin could have felt safe, he was rejected. In the church, his sexuality was met with everything from passive acceptance to the suggestion of conversion therapy. I am a Christian. Uh, I attended Bible studies with Justin. We talked about that you know, quite a bit. But there were times when people in the Christian community would apply so much pressure to him to want him to be a certain way. Similarly, in football, he was spurned because of who he was. Players would get out of the communal bath when he entered. During a spell with Torquay, he frequently changed in the referee's room. At West Ham, telling a teammate they would be sharing a hotel room with Fashionu became a cruel, practical joke. Incredibly, when signing for Torquay, he was tested for HIV on the basis that he was in a high-risk group. Of course, even before Justin became known as a gay footballer living in Britain in the 1980s, he was a black footballer living in Britain in the 1980s. Even in parts of the black community where he should have felt safe, safe from the racist abuse that he was also subjected to, he was rejected. In the addition of The Voice following Justin's coming out, he was subjected to page upon page of shame and loathing. They carried an interview with his brother John, headlined, My gay brother is an outcast. The newspaper's spiritual columnist wrote that Justin now belonged to Satan. Another writer, Tony Sewell, chastised Fashionu, saying, we heteros are sick and tired of tortured queens playing hide-and-seek around their closets. Under a new editor, Winsome Grace Cornish, The Voice did fairly rapidly improve their stance, publishing a sympathetic interview with him in 1991. But in many respects, the damage was done.
7: The attacks on him because he dared to be himself.
4: Michael Cashman was the first gay actor to appear in EastEnders, but more pertinently was a friend of Justin's for years. He's now in the House of Lords.
7: He dared to throw off the constraints that others were placing on him. The popular media and football need one another. Symbiotic, they feed off one another. Um, They were saying to him, if you dare stray from... The life that we need to depict for you, then we will punish you. His religion was saying, if you dare stray from that which you can do publicly uh, and be a Christian, then we will punish you. The voice equally was saying the same. A a black man cannot be open
4: and out. can be out, but you have to be ashamed. Fashanu was not publicly out during most of his playing career, but equally his sexuality wasn't a particularly closely guarded secret. He had relationships with men, he went to gay bars and clubs, he spent time with the activist Peter Tatchell, Adam Crafton.
2: Justin Fashanu had first started to consider coming out as far back as 1982 when he was very friendly with Peter Tatchell, and Peter Tatchell had actually discouraged him because he didn't feel that Justin was in the right state of mind at that time uh,
4: to cope with what would be the, I suppose, the level of hostility. But it wasn't until 1990 that he came out, or to be more accurate, was forced to come out. A Sunday newspaper approached him, saying they were going to publish a story about his sexuality. So rather than allow the story to be told without his involvement, he approached The Sun with the help of late football agent Eric Hall. Justin Fashner had previously denied that he was gay
2: um, to the Sunday People newspaper in 1982, and he'd won damages in court. So there was also this extra layer of, well, if he was now to say he was gay, maybe he'd have to pay back some of that money that he'd been paid out on as well. What then happened was Eric Hall, you know, I suppose in in just in sense of panic, realised that there was no way that the paper in question were not going to run the story. And that led between Eric and Justin, them to make an approach to The Sun to say, a different newspaper's going to run this story. How about we do it instead with an interview with as many scurrilous revelations as you want about me sleeping with unnamed MPs and pop stars.
4: And they and they ran the story over several days. Fashionu received plenty of criticism for choosing The Sun as the outlet he gave his coming out interview to, partly because he thought that by confronting it in the paper that was perceived as the worst for homophobia, he could educate the public. He further explained his logic on the BBC's Open to Question in 1992.
1: If I'd gone to the Times, then the, the sun would have hounded me in ways which I didn't feel I wanted to do until they got the story. The third uh, uh, decision I made was the fact that by me coming out would have jeopardized um, contracts and promotions financially. And The son had offered me a better deal than everybody else. That's the reality of it. The reality of it is the fact that um, through all this good uh, good work, so people say, you still have to put food on your table. So.
4: Probably the main opponent to Justin's decision to come out in a national newspaper was his brother, John, who offered him £75,000 not to do the story. John complained that Justin's sexuality harmed his own reputation, declared that he wouldn't be happy to share a dressing room with him, and years later claimed that Justin had made it all up for attention. He has since admitted that he was a monster to Justin. Justin also found it difficult to speak to his mother about his sexuality.
1: I find that too painful for me to, um, t- to confront my mother at the moment, but that's me. She, she has continually said that um, she, would, um, she would meet with me, but I can't, I, I, I can't deal with that at the moment because I think that um, there's, too, there's too much hurt in here for me with all the other things going on, and I can't afford to allow that situation to, to, to hurt me at the moment.
4: Needless to say, becoming the first male footballer to come out was not a positive career move in 1990.
1: For somebody who, who has the, the pedigree and the background that I've got, um, I found that a lot of doors closed. Friends who I'd, be, who I'd known for many, many years who'd become managers and, and coaches and chairmen and directors, suddenly the door shut. Um, so there was a lot of backlash and I couldn't get a job. The bottom line is I couldn't get a job. So I think it affected me quite, quite badly. And also there was so much, so many th- stories that, that subsequently were written about me that I was supposed to have done that, you know, if I'd have done all the things that the papers had written about, <laughs> I'd have quite an enjoyable life. I think.
4: While Justin didn't come out until 1990, he lived through the previous decade knowing very well the stigma that his sexuality carried. And it is worth reiterating what it was like to be a gay man in the 1980s here's adam crafton again
2: in 1980s britain was i would argue probably the most challenging point um since you know since the 1960s to be a gay a gay person in britain um, because actually what had happened in after decriminalization in 1967 the 70s you know by all accounts was actually quite it wasn't it wasn't an open time but it was quite an encouraging time it was an optimistic time because you know there were signs of progress um, and then in the 1980s things change again things change again because of the HIV epidemic um, which came which came to London um, and obviously all around you know eventually all around the world but the, the impact of that in terms of the way that the HIV crisis was originally framed as you know, in, in the national press um, and also officially, you know, by the United States as gay-related immune, immunodeficiency. That was the the term that was used in the States in 1982. That led to it being called the gay plague for, you know, in, in national newspapers for, you know, really 10 years or so on and off.
4: Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male
6: homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men.
2: You know this was a period where you could be sacked uh, from your job due to your sexuality, you could you know be refused a mortgage, refused insurance, The age of consent, if you were gay compared to if you were uh, heterosexual, was different. This was a time where gay bars and pubs had blacked out windows, either because people were fearful of being attacked or they were fearful of being seen and exposed for who they were.
4: That of course continued well after he came out. Ian Gower became friends with Justin when he moved to Brighton in 1995. He explains what it was like for him to simply exist at a time when there appeared to be someone trying to trap him in some way around every corner
8: he was aware of the fact that the the media particularly the the tabloid newspapers wanted some scandal from him so i met him and i was introduced to him and we had a chat and then um, that was at the bar that was with the owner of the nightclub his boyfriend so so that's fine and you have to sort of understand i would have been 19 and i think he probably would have been um, early to mid-thirties, mm-hmm. I've never quite worked out the age difference, so it would have been perfect for a newspaper to take a photograph of us yeah. and try to suggest that he's trying to pick up young men in the nightclub. But later on I saw him and I was chatting to him and it was perfectly normal, like, how are you, i perfectly fine, how's things, oh yeah, it's going fine, contract's going well, and then straight afterwards somebody came up to me completely randomly and said, oh, it's a bit terrible what's happened to Justin? And I'm looking at him like, what? what are you talking about? It's very confusingly, um, conversation. And I said, mm, I don't know anything that's, that's happened. And the person just walked off. And I found my friend and said, this really random thing just happened. And I said, oh, no, that's a plainclothes journalist in there. They're just fishing for you to get articles out from him. And then I sort of also noticed that every time I spoke to him, he had this very odd posture, which was almost like he's leaning over the wall, which... Um, I then not realise that's because he didn't want anyone to stand too close to him so that the photograph couldn't be taken to make it look like um, something else was happening. Um, it just needed me really to be just a little bit too close and then mm. could get a photograph and stay in it.
4: While much of fashion's life was defined by turmoil and conflict, it wasn't all miserable. He was a handsome gay man and by all accounts took full advantage of that. After coming out, he also became a more and more prominent voice in the gay community. A.J. R. Lee recalls some rather more fun memories of Justin.
0: Oh man, anything sports.
4: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, anything, anything where you
0: know he could compete uh, with. It didn't matter what it was—billiards, uh, tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, I thankfully never boxed him because mm-hmm. he probably would have knocked me out. Um, he, <laughs> uh, he he loved uh, just talking with people. He could he could sit around and talk for hours about anything and everything. And he always wanted to know like every little detail, you know, that it was a fun, you know, part about him. Like he, he would all, always ask you like 20 questions, you know, every time you saw him. And, um, and so that, uh, you know, he just, he just really just kind of enjoyed life, you know, mm-hmm. just took it in and, and made everybody around him more interested in, in life as well, especially when it came to their success. You know, he wanted everybody around him to be successful. He wanted to bring out the best in everyone. And I, I would imagine, you know, that that would have been great as a teammate. You know, I never yeah. I, I played ball, never played at his level, but um, those are endearing qualities, you know, for a teammate.
2: Since the publication of the article, We've had a number of people from Justin's life who have kindly got in touch um, and shared their own memories of time with Justin Fashionu, um from all over the world. We've had people message from Australia, um, message from New Zealand, um, and also from the United States. Uh, one of those people is the journalist David Peisner, who kindly joined us to share some of his own recollections from Justin's time coaching in Atlanta.
6: There were times that I was, you know, hugely frustrated with him and I found him to be like a pain in the ass like I said he was a pretty terrible boss but like just a character like the most charismatic guy I've ever met in my life Um, like I can't even think of anyone else who comes close so Jackie Robinson is obviously this sort of revered figure in American sports um, you know broke the color line in baseball and but he like Jackie Robinson was chosen for that job essentially like he was you know they, they sort of found Jackie Robinson and said this is the guy he's he's perfect he's this great player he's a great person he can handle the pressure Justin was not that Justin chose himself in a way and he chose it at a very strange time in his life he wasn't at the top of his game when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier it literally broke that barrier and and all of a sudden there were all of these uh black players justin essentially didn't break that barrier he he climbed over it and got shot
4: it's partly this that makes his premature death so tragic because of what the world lost justin fashion who could have been a role model
3: i was i was absolutely crying out for uh for any sort of role models and-
4: jay lemonius is captain of stonewall fc works in diversity and inclusion and also works for the fa and even though the story is quite uh, didn't necessarily have a,
3: a happy ending, but we always speak really positively about the importance of visibility and, and having sort of role models and that feeling of not being the first, particularly in a sport like football, where uh, and, and sort of the area that I grew up in, like a role model like Justin for
4: me would have been would have been absolutely huge. Michael Cashman believes that if Justin who was alive today, he could have been even more influential than that.
7: If he was sixty years old, he would now probably be in. Parliament, he would be leading on a range of different issues because he had the courage to recognise the oppression that he'd been a part of visiting upon himself and that he, above all, uh, was his liberator.
4: Sadly, it's doubtful that if Justin was alive today he would be an MP simply because of what happened on the 24th of March 1998 when he was coaching Maryland mania in America. He was accused of sexually assaulting a 17-year-old. Police documents record that Fashionu was charged on five counts. These included first and second-degree assault in addition to a second-degree sexual assault. Fashionu is alleged to have told lies to the investigators denying that he was a gay man and denying sexual contact when first interviewed by the officer. Both of these statements would prove untrue. The 17-year-old had alleged that he had woken up at Fashionu's to find the footballer performing oral sex on him, with his jeans and underwear pulled down. Fashionu later claimed that sexual contact had taken place, but that it was consensual, and that the boy in question had threatened to blackmail him. When approached by police, the alleged victim's own ex-girlfriend told officers she believed the complainant was lying. The teenager, she claimed had already informed his ex-girlfriend of his intention to sue fashionu
2: it's important to say the police did charge Justin Fashionu but it never went to trial you know it never went to trial because he took his own life and we we may never know whether he took his own life because he was he had so little faith in an american justice system at that time and how a black gay man will be perceived against a white complainant or because he did what was alleged and you know those two things those two contrasting versions of events stand and people make their own minds upon them
4: Fashanu ran after speaking to the police he flew back to london two of the charges against Fashanu were for sodomy and perverted practices essentially laws that forbade same-sex relations even if sex did take place and it was consensual in the eyes of the law in maryland he was guilty and would have gone to prison ajr lee he he did
0: have a lot to fear when it came to that because as a gay black man in America, you know, he, he would be found uh, that um, racism and homophobia would definitely play a role in how he would be judged.
4: A few weeks after he returned to England, Fashionu broke into a garage in Shoreditch, East London, and took his own life. He was 37. In his suicide note, he denied assaulting the 17-year-old in Maryland and also said, I wish I was more of a good son, brother, uncle, and friend, but I tried my best. This seems to be a really hard world. I hope the Jesus I love welcomes me home. I will at last find peace. It
0: was a phone call um, right before he uh, took his life. And, um, I was begging him to come back to, um, to face his accusers and, um, get his life back. And, um, that was the last time that we spoke. When he passed away, I just felt this sense of loss, not just for him, but for all the people that he could have helped.
4: The legacy left by Justin Fashionu is a complicated one, to say the least. Here was a man who, had he lived, could have been an inspiration to so many different people. A smart, articulate man who could have been a role model for hundreds of kids, just like him. But he's also a man who spent most of his life lost, searching for something in himself. So could he reasonably be expected to give his life to helping others? And he was also a man who died shortly after being accused of serious sexual assault, which makes any eulogies about him tricky at best. Yet the way Fashion story has been framed over the years has been profoundly unhelpful. My reading of it over time has been that, and by speaking to all different
2: people involved in his life was that, he was less tortured by who he was and more tortured by the way people perceived who he was. And I think it has suited those who mistreated him in life to remember him in, in that other way. Adam Crafton. I think the, the, the framing of Justin Fashanu, both in life and in death, has had the most profound subconscious impact on football as a sport and those who follow football. I think the fact that there was one publicly out British gay footballer, and he took his life, has served as this cautionary tale. This tale of if you dare to do this, this might happen to you. I think that's a that's a version that you know certainly I as a as a young gay football fan internalised. I I'd almost consumed. The fact that Fashion knew, you know, there's not someone who had read about him hugely at the time, but the way it had been, I suppose, filtered to me over the time was the fact that there was this one footballer who was gay and he couldn't exist in the sport and then he killed himself meant that it was one of those things that that automatically would mean long-term that my life as a gay person who likes sport would be
3: more difficult. Jay Lemonius. I would like to think we have come a long way in... Um... And some of the lessons have been learnt, but I, I think there is also a, an element where I think we, we still need to do better, particularly uh, particularly in the media, where I think a lot of a lot of the conversations are heavily focused on uh, when are we going to get that out gay Premier League player? And a lot of sensationalism and a lot of almost uh, try, a bit of a witch hunt of, of, of trying to find that, that openly gay Premier League player. And I think those conversations, those narratives aren't just aren't just reductive, they're incredibly harmful um, because I think it, it never takes into account whether whether a bi player might exist or whether somebody's just questioning or or it doesn't necessarily um, look to kind of uh, empower or, or, or celebrate some of the many uh, lesbian, gay and bi women that play in the game. So I, I think one thing that we, we, we can do do definitely better is, is look at how we can report responsibly around LGBT inclusion or, or around um, sort of sexual orientation particularly as it pertains to, to football.
4: This edition of Beyond the Headline was based on Adam Crafton's article for The Athletic. We know Justin Fashion who died, now let us hear how he lived. To read that and hundreds of other pieces by the best football writers around, subscribe to The Athletic by going to theathletic.com forward slash beyond. Beyond the Headline was produced by Adonis Pratsidis for The Athletic. It was adapted from Adam Crafton's article by Nick Miller. The interviews were conducted by Adam Crafton, and the narrator was me, James McNicholas. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss out on future editions of Beyond the Headline.
0: The Athletic.